The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, They were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. At the heart of the church's prayer for the centuries has been the Lord's Prayer. Buried Right in the center of that prayer is the request that God forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. It's likely at this moment in the prayer, if at all, that we're bound to be most self-aware and reflective. We turn an eye toward ourselves and perhaps with a shade of discomfort take stock. Forgive, O Lord, as I have forgiven. Forgive me too, for I've forgiven others. In St. Matthew's account, Christ concludes his teaching of the prayer by drawing out the shadow side of this petition, its negative implication, an implication we hoped might go unexplored and unstated, but he says it anyways. He says, if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive your sins. Our gospel passage tonight renders the same truth, but now in the form of a parable. A parable with a pretty unavoidable point. Unlike some of Christ's other more cryptic stories, we don't have the luxury here of pleading ignorance. And in case we are so dull that it might get by us, we have the aid of Peter's question. Peter often helps those of us who can't make sense of things. How many times ought we to forgive, he asks. Seven times? Seems pretty reasonable. So how does Christ reply? He ups the ante. Eight times. No, not eight times, not nine times, not ten times, but 77 times. Now, for the bookkeepers out there, 
With keen memories for logging grievances, this is not a challenge to record each wrong so that when the blessed number 78 comes along, you can finally tear into that person with some just and zealous rage. The point's obvious, if frankly unwelcome. There can be no limit to the pardon that we extend to others. We are given no point at which our mercy is free to finally run out. Now we're tempted, I think, in a culture shaped as it is around the idea of individual rights, with its added command to live and let live, to interpret this call to forgiveness in basically one of two ways. Either one, we interpret it therapeutically. That is, forgiveness is a kind of self-help technique here. I know you've heard it. You've probably even posted it on Facebook. Don't be ashamed. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. That's forgiveness as self-help, as, as a kind of therapeutic device. The second way we might interpret this is basically as a call for tolerance. More or less, though I'm bothered by what you've done, I'll respect your freedom to do as you choose. It's not mine to judge. Those are two ways that our culture is pretty comfortable with understanding forgiveness here. I don't want to be too dismissive about these ideas, because they may, they may bear a certain truth, but they are not what Christ's call to mercy is about. Our mercy, the mercy that we as the church are to extend to our neighbors, does not first and foremost have to do with us. It's not primarily about our own self-healing or self-medicating or about how nice of people we are, revealing the moral character of our own souls. Our mercy has everything to do with God's mercy. Our mercy does not have any ground except God's mercy to the world in Christ. Our mercy is not self-standing. The Pharisees were right to ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? The parable we heard tonight makes this clear. The, the man who we're expected to identify with, unfortunately, the servant, does not begin by showing mercy. He begins as the recipient of mercy. At the start of this story, he stands before the king in a position of complete helplessness and vulnerability. He has no claim whatsoever. The amount of money that we're told he owes, the master here, is king, is a, it's the sort of amount that a kid, if you're asking them to give you a number, is going to make up. It's like so outrageous and obscene that it doesn't make any sense. It's like that's, that's the sort of, life, that's the sort of amount of money you would need multiple lifetimes to even reach. There's no possibility that this debt is going to be repaid. So the man's going to be forced to make amends in the only way possible. He will offer up his life in slavery, and not only his life, but the lives of his wife and children. He's going to give everything that he has as long as he has anything to give. That's the logic of him paying back this debt. Now we're told, though, that at this man's pleading, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. What the master's done here is nothing short than giving this man his life back. He just counts up his losses and lets the man go free. So it's only after this pardon, this massive pardon, that he is in a position now to himself exercise mercy. So he has the opportunity now to pardon one of his co-workers who owes him basically a couple hundred bucks, maybe a thousand dollars. But the great tragedy of the story is that he doesn't even show an ounce of pity. He grabs him by the throat and demands his money back, and when his co-worker pleads and says, hey, I really will pay you back, which there's good reason to expect in this case, he actually could, he denies him it. He says, nope, off to prison. 
He had just been pardoned moments before, yet now in this situation, he won't have any of it. Now, this story stands as a warning for us because, believe it or not, we're not the king at the start of the story. We're that character right in the middle there. We're the one who is absurdly indebted. If the upshot of Christ's teaching in this parable is that we are to extend mercy, we have to see this thing first. First and foremost, we are those who have been shown mercy. If we fail to see the limitless mercy that God has shown us, we will fail to show mercy to our neighbors, and we will certainly not imitate Christ in loving our enemies. But here's the rub. This is the real risk, and this is the real tragedy of the story. It's not just that he won't forgive his friend, and that this guy suffers them because of it and goes off to prison, but it's that he's so unaffected and unmoved by the forgiveness of his master. It's as though he doesn't register at all what has been done for him. He reveals complete and utter blindness and hardness of heart. This sort of callousness and distance, this inability to recognize what has happened, is one of the most disheartening and and horrifying things to see. It's not not just a simple slip-up where he lashes out at the guy and calls for the money back. This is an image of a guy so caved in on himself that he can't recognize how much he's received. He can't see at all. Now, what's unsettling about this story and why the last few weeks when I've been thinking about it, it's been kind of uncomfortable and giving me a lot of honestly nervous energy in thinking about it, is that this blindness, this hardness of heart may very well be our own. I think we need to reflect on this because it's easy to let it pass by as not a real, not as, not a real option. But inexplicably, we do run the course of our lives so often unaffected and unmoved by God's mercy toward us. We fail to register and take in any of the kindness that he has shown us. The first call tonight, then, is not be a better person and forgive people. No, it's pay attention to all that God has done for you. That was the whole aim of the psalm that we prayed together. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It's the recognition of those things that is essential. Were it not for God out of his absolute delight and joy in creating us and intending us and bringing us into being, we wouldn't exist at all. Were it not for God, there'd be no world for us to walk about in, no sun and moon over our heads, no dirt and grass under our feet, no friends and family to walk beside us. Every good thing has come to us from God's hand. There is nothing, not a single good thing that you have received, that you have enjoyed, that was not intended for you and given to you as a gift by God. 
But not only this, when we had thrown our lives away, bringing them to nothing by rejecting the source of our life, handing ourselves over to death and waste, God looked upon this misery of ours and he outbid it. He saw our suicidal plunge into nothingness, but he would not let it be. God would not let us unmake ourselves. And so out of nothing but his sheer love, God the Son, who in himself knows only joy and life, took upon himself our flesh. And with it, the pain and decay and all the dark things that plague our lives. He willingly subjected himself to sin's death-dealing rule, descending into death and hell itself. Jesus Christ, the author of life, was strung up on a tree by those who, even in the moments in which they were murdering him, were depending upon his life-giving for their very existence. Christ, having assumed our nature, carried us with him through the waters of judgment, putting sin to death in his body and gloriously raising it up again in his resurrection from the dead. All this is what God has done for us. He has made our misery his own so that it might be done away with, and he's made our nature his own so that we might be restored to him, no longer alienated and removed from the life and light of his presence. This is the mercy of God. This is the forgiveness of our sins, and this is the debt that the master canceled. This is what it's all about. Again and again, we have to return to the reality of God's mercy for us in Christ. Our minds have to be devoted to contemplating these truths. Simply, we need to think about them, and we need to think about them often. We have a culture that distracts us so much. There's so much that competes for our attention. But Christ told Martha, there is one thing that is needed, and it is this. It's to pay attention to the kindness and mercy and love of God for us. It's from this position, and only from here, that we can now move to think about the mercy that's required of us. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Why are we to forgive? Why are we to show mercy? Because the Lord has done so for us. But this isn't just merely imitating. We're not just forgiving because God forgave us and now this is some fun chain of mercy that's begun. That's just to moralize the picture. Our forgiving others is a witness to God's redemption of the world. Forgiveness is about God's work of new creation. When Christians show mercy, the point is not primarily that Christians are nice people or even that God's very nice, but it's that God has done a radically new thing, a thing that's completely transformed the world that we live in and our position in that world. When we ask for forgiveness, we're not asking God to just ignore sin or to be indifferent to it. We're asking instead for God to raise us up from the dead, to make us new. There's no forgiveness without recreation. St. Paul makes this point explicit in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Do you catch that there? What does it mean that sin is forgiven? It means that the old has passed away and new creation has come. This is why the Pharisees were right when they said that only God can forgive sins. For only God can make life out of death 
Our prayer for forgiveness, then, is a prayer for God's kingdom to come on earth. It's a prayer for the new world to come. So why do we forgive others? Well, it's as a testimony to God's work of new creation. It's as a testimony to the fact that sin has been swallowed up in Christ's death with all those old things that have passed away. And the church now, as those who have been raised into the new world by God's Spirit, we now live in anticipation as a foretaste of those things to come. And so we have only one way to deal with sin, and it's the way that Christ dealt with it. It's to show mercy. We give up our claim over others. Our right, whatever right we had to exact vengeance, we gave it up when we died in the waters of baptism. We no longer have any hold over other people. We gave that up. So when, when we're sinned against, what do we do now? We pardon. And when we're sinned against again, what do we do? We pardon again. And when sinned against again, pardon again, and on and on without limit and without ceasing. We should never grow tired of forgiving those who seek our forgiveness. And frankly, this is the only way that a church like ours, filled with normal human people, is going to actually be able to live together. The forgiveness of sins is the only sure basis upon which this community can stand. As the psalmist reminds us, we're but dust, we have short days, and we are extremely prone to fail one another. So we have to be merciful if we're going to endure as a community. Now I'm sympathetic to those of you who have been burned by the church. The millennial generation, which I'm a part of, is known for being upset about being burned by the church. And it makes sense. The sort of things that we share with one another in church life are some of the things that are most near and dear to us. A lot of our other relationships don't go that deep, but church relationships often do, which means we're put in positions of real vulnerability, often around things that we're uncomfortable about or just kind of nervous to speak about. And so because these relationships often reach this level of depth, there's a real risk that when things go wrong, they're going to go really wrong. With the church, we make ourselves vulnerable. And what happens? People fail you. You entrust yourself to them, and then they hurt you. Don't be surprised by this. This isn't some new thing that we've discovered that the church screws, screws up. It's, it's been happening for a very long time. The, the sober truth is this. If you are at all invested and involved in this community, the people here are going to disappoint you, and they're going to wrong you. And you're probably going to wrong and disappoint the people here too. Christ's teaching actually presupposes this. He assumes this is going to be the case. So if you're in a church where people are messing up, you're in the right place. That's actually what we should expect. We have to forgive others because they actually are going to sin against us. Like Father Stephen said last week, if you're not close enough to the folks in this community to feel the burden and the frustration of their sins. And if they can't feel the frustration of your own sins, then you probably haven't gotten close enough yet. Now we have a culture that thinks itself very merciful. Everybody loves Christ's teachings about forgiveness. You can tweet this and you'll get lots of retweets and favorites. People love stuff about mercy. But I hate to say it, I don't think our culture really knows what it wants. Mercy is a great thing when you're far apart from one another, when you're distant. Because frankly, it sounds like a way you get to ignore other people, but feel good about it. It's like, oh, they're doing a bad thing, but I'm being merciful. I don't have to worry about that. You can do your thing, and I won't cast judgment on you. This isn't Christian mercy. This isn't Christian love. This sort of indifference does not, it doesn't hold a muster at all to what Christian mercy is supposed to be. 
Mercy clocks in when you're close up and involved with other people. Real mercy will cost you something. This is why I think mercy still has so much to say to a culture like ours where it's become a sort of cliche. Because I think when the real thing shows up, when true mercy is present, it'll be one of the most powerful ways that the church reveals what God has done for the world. All that to say, the sins of the church should not scandalize us. In large part, the church's sins are actually going to be the occasion for God's mercy to be made visible. The church is not a community without failure and sin, but it is a community that because of Christ is able to bear, it's able to bear with failure and sin, not by hiding from these failures, not by pretending like they haven't happened, but by facing up to them and bringing them before God's own judgment in the cross and resurrection of Christ. Now, what does mercy look like? At its heart, mercy seeks to alleviate the sorrow and misery of another person. In forgiveness, which is primarily what Christ is talking about here, this looks like a brother or sister who knows that they've wronged you, they know they've fractured the relationship, and they wish to restore it. But it's only yours to restore. That's the tough thing about when you screw someone over, is now they're, the ball's in their court. They have the freedom to pardon you or not, to reinitiate the relationship, or to leave it be and let things stay distant. But to show mercy, in this case, is to restore that relationship. When you see someone's misery and wanting to reconnect with you, mercy is to forgive and to reconnect. And there's even a sort of mercy that goes beyond just forgiving someone who repents. This is what Stephen talked about last week. This is mercy for those who won't repent. What does it look like in this case? Well, it looks like going out to the one who's wronged you, even though they don't care if the relationship's dissolved and fallen apart, it looks like the shepherd who goes out to the sheep and seeks them out, seeks to restore what has been lost. This is a proactive sort of mercy. But then there's also a kind of mercy that goes after those who suffer for any reason whatsoever. Not just for having sinned, but for any reason at all, be it poverty or sickness or the burden of old age or loneliness, Mercy seeks to bring life and joy wherever there is suffering and death. This is where the language of the works of mercy comes from. It's, and it's something that we need to be committed to as a church if we're going to have a well-rounded mercy here. Now, those of you who are much wiser than me know that there's something that needs to be said to qualify all of this. The psalmist says that we're but dust, and I, this points not only to our weakness and tendency towards sin, but also to the limitations of our mercy. We're finite creatures living in a deeply misshapen world. Our mercy, then, will not be anything other than finite and creaturely mercy. It will not and it cannot recreate our neighbor, but it can only witness to the recreation that God can accomplish in Christ. This is the great tension of the already but not yet of God's kingdom. I know it can seem cheap to say that mercy in this time is going to be primarily about a sort of inward disposition or a kind of inward attitude. If, that's, if saying that is really just a way of saying you don't have to act mercifully, you just have to feel merciful, that's not what I'm talking about. I think that's just a way of evading Christ's commands. But there is a sense in which there's something true about that. Christ says we ought to always forgive one another from our hearts. But outwardly, this mercy is not always very transparent. 
If you're in an abusive relationship, mercy is not the requirement that you remain in it and keep suffering abuse. Nor does mercy mean that there will never be legal repercussions for people's actions. The political structures that preserve our world and keep it from descent into violence are gifts from God. And Christian mercy testifies that these structures are temporary, they're not absolute, for a day will come and we no longer need them. We no longer need the crutch of these restraining powers. And that their judgment is not final. That even those who are put in prison for life, the church knows that judgment cannot be final. There is a pardoning word that can outbid that. But it also recognizes that they do have a relative worth and God has made a provision for us in them. So to say that we are to be merciful to others is not to say that it's always going to look super obvious. There may be times in which mercy requires getting out of a situation. There may be churches that have become so abusive where you can't stay. I'm not saying that mercy means just bearing it out. There are limits to our mercy because of the fact that we're creatures that are vulnerable. That's not to say that our heart should harbor vengeance and violence toward others. It's precisely in the heart that we need to be willing to extend all mercy and to pray for our enemies. But the simple thing is that our mercy cannot accomplish what only God's mercy can accomplish. Now this might be a cause for us to lament, but it's also a cause for us to trust and to hope and to praise God for what he in his limitless mercy will accomplish for us. God's mercy can reach where our mercy cannot. Precisely in those moments when we feel the frailty and the weakness and the frustrating limits of our own mercy, those are the times when we need to look to God and to rejoice in his mercy that will happily outdo all of our efforts. So after this, as we go to celebrate Holy Communion, I ask us to together fix our eyes upon the mercy of God that's come to us in Christ. Jesus' body and blood, broken and given to us, just is the mercy of God. If you want to know what it is, you want to know what it's about, that's it. So in faith, let us go together and let God's work of restoration in Christ sweep over us. And in the words of the psalm, praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.